Welcome to the NBDA podcast, interviews with industry leaders and subject experts from across the business development world. Join us as we talk about real-world experiences, challenges, and opportunities that can take your career to the next level. The NBDA podcast is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the official podcast of the National Business Development Association. My guest today is Scott Kelly. Scott is the president of Encore Search Partners, a executive search firm right here in Houston. Scott has a great story, and he's a really impressive guy. He's pretty early in his career, but he's really experienced a great deal of success and has rapidly climbed the career ladder. We talked about his background, some best practices that he follows, things he learned that he still uses today in his BD career. We talked about why he joined the board, the benefits of being part of NBDA, and we also talked about his three business development best practices We talked about the value of a network and how you grow and build that. And last but not least, we also talked about the age-old question of whether he prefers barbecue or Tex-Mex. This is really a great interview, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Scott, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you having me on, David. Well, my pleasure. So let's talk about your firm and your role. So tell us about Encore Search. What do you all do and how'd you end up there? Sure. So kind of give you a 30,000 foot view of us. We're uh, the largest privately held executive search firm in the city of Houston. We have about 35, 37 employees today. We got several starting at the beginning of the year. We primarily focus our recruiting efforts in the industrial manufacturing space. In the legal space, primarily with attorneys, partner level attorneys and associate level attorneys. And then financial advisors is actually our biggest business unit. So we help firms recruit wealth advisors from their competitors. And oh, so okay. we've been in business for many years now. I joined the firm back in 2016. I, I couldn't spell recruiting when I joined on yeah. partners. But I came in and primarily an integrator role. I'm sure you're familiar, obviously, of all people familiar with the term integrator for EOS. And so I came in as the vice president, took over a lot of operations, became the SVP, then the COO, and now the president of Encore Search Partners. That is, that is great. So how, how uh, large was the firm when you arrived in 2016? Do you remember how many yes, people about- were there? Yeah, we had about seven people at the time. We were a bunch of guys in a, a small industrial park out in Richmond, Texas. And, you know, we decided that we, when we rolled out EOS in 2017, 2018, we came up with a clear plan of how we wanted to grow, what verticals we wanted to grow in, what was going to set us apart. And then came up with that plan and then started executing and checking box after box after box. And so, you know, we're, we're, organically growing. We don't grow by acquisition or by taking on bad deals or things like that. We're self-funded, no debt, right? And so we are very healthily growing year over year. Been perennially on the Fast 100, Inc. 5000, best places to work with through HBJ, all that stuff. Well, that's Um, awesome. 
yeah, just really exciting growth that we've had. And like I said, it's just very healthy growth. Yeah. Just curious, did you all self-implement EOS or did you use an outside uh, consultant? We did self-implement. I know a ton of the integrators or implementers, I'm sorry, in, in the city of Houston. They're actually one of my big referral sources because everyone says they want to find me. And so I we did self-implement, but I have my Vistas group in about a uh, little over three quarters of my business group is actually implementing either self-implementing or using an implementer for EOS. And so we get to bounce a lot of ideas and I get sort of that board board of uh, directors help, so to speak, with what what's going on in our business. Well, that's great that your your most of your Vistage group is using EOS that really gives you a common language to all speak, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you talked about your, your three primary verticals, but aside from those verticals, what maybe at a higher level makes you all different from your competitors? I'm, I'm guessing uh, there, there must be something to it to have the kind of growth you've had the last you know, five years. Yeah. I mean, EOS, I think it was a big part of it. We, we sat down and really looked at the business that was the most successful, the most profitable, the deals we closed the most. And it's really revenue generators, right? And so, you know, think about high-level sales producers in the industrial manufacturing oil field space back in the day before, obviously, the bubble burst. And and you look at, you know, attorneys, you look at consulting engineers, you look at financial advisors, right? All these individuals are billable by the hour for the most part or get paid for production. Mm-hmm. And so we we don't recruit executive assistants. You know, some of our core legacy accounts we've built a lot of money with, we may do them one off right here or there, but we're really focusing in on revenue generators, you know, because they could say, hey, Tom, slide over. Hey, Susan, slide over. Billy's sitting right here. And then Billy's bringing his book of business and he's going to immediately bring revenue to the firm on day one. Right. And right. So, you know, if you take an attorney and they're paying them one hundred and sixty, two hundred thousand dollars a year on a base salary, but they bill them out at three fifty, five hundred dollars an hour, they're making money on that person in year one, and they're happy to write a fee to me. They're not going to complain about the fee. They're not going to, you know, moan and gripe trying to beat us up on the percentage that we charge. Right? They're they're happy to write it to cost of doing business. And so we yeah. really narrowed in our focus on that. That allowed us to scale and really attack those verticals where people are revenue generators. Interesting. No, it makes uh, makes all the sense uh, in the world because in theory, you're not even really a cost because the right. amount of incremental profit you're adding to the business, you know, is a multiple of what they're paying you. Absolutely. Okay. So just to give you kind of or give the the listeners a sense of you know kind of how you guys work could you give me an example of like a client success story uh, you don't need to share the you know the company's name but maybe a story that kind of demonstrates that that value uh, proposition does uh, yeah. one come to mind yeah i mean we've had a lot lately a lot of success where Clients, because we work in specific verticals and we're, we're niched and right, the riches are in the niches, they always say. And when yep. you niche out, you gain a lot of expertise and you're able to provide that market intelligence back to your clients and mm-hmm. tell them, you know, exactly what's going on, what somebody with this pedigree can command on the open market, right? Because we know right now, especially there's what they call this labor shortage or the mass resignation, right, of 2021. Right. 
all these things. People have all these catchphrases for it, but it's it. At the end of the day, it's an employee-driven market right now. And when it's mm-hmm. an employee-driven market, companies have to realize that they need to realize what that really means. You know, the demands are different than it was years ago. A lot of times, people wanted titles, people wanted you know pay raises. Now they want mental health awareness. They, you know what I mean. They want right. uh, work from work from home. Right. There's a lot of folks, myself included, where I grew up in that sort of boiler room mentality where we're all in this big room together making calls and you're feeding off this energy and doing all this stuff. And, and our team is very much structured that way. I have very little work from home unless it's a necessity in, in my business. Right. And so like I have that same mentality, but we got to tell them, hey, guys, the tides have shifted. We need to be different. You need to be nimble. You need work from home. You need these things. And some of our Fortune 100 clients, maybe they, they're moving a little bit slower. Right, but the the smaller you know mid mid sized companies um, are are adapting and and taking our market intelligence to heart and saying you know what let's offer a little bit more money if they come into the office versus work from home let's let's adjust the schedule to maybe come come to the office on certain days or let's change the benefits plan to make sure that we have a strong mental health you know program mm-hmm. that's offered for these individuals and and so they're taking our feedback and they're implementing it. And it shortens our sales cycle, so we're able to get deals closed faster because we don't have to get to the offer stage, get an offer turned down, and say, "Told you." They're taking right. it on the front end. Right. Well, that's uh, no. Thank you for that that clarification. That is interesting. So you're saying that because of your uh, vertical focus on the three verticals, you really can go deep in those verticals, and you really have a lot of great market intel that you can share with your clients that ends up being a differentiator because it helps prevent yeah i'm guessing the worst thing in the world is somebody who's looking to pay x and the market is you know 1.5 x right you right. don't even want to waste yeah. your time on a search like that yep and that's the thing too right and so some people will come to us and say hey tom's retiring we got to replace tom uh tom's been with us for 30 years you know he's the keeper of all knowledge whatever but Tom has been getting his 3% salary increases year over year because he's been there for so long. They've kind of taken advantage of that and given him his normal 3 to 5% bumps, right? Well, the right. market is different, right? People that move from company to company every you know, three years, five years, even 10 years, they're getting 10%, 20% increases in pay when they make those moves. And so to get the Tom today at the, at the salary with the experience that he has, you know, you're going to have to pay a lot more than uh, what sure. you expect or what, what Tom's making because this person's moved around at two or three different firms and has gotten those 10, 20% pay increases to move. And so we have to align expectations in those categories and, and things like that as well. And so, you know, we could say, do you want Tom when he started? We can find you Tom when he started, but Tom 30 years in, that's going to be, that's going to cost you a lot more money. That makes sense. That makes sense. What do you what do you enjoy the most about running Encore Search or, or leading uh, so, leading leading running whichever verb you want to use? Yeah, I like leading better personally. Uh, I I love our, our people. Our team is incredible, right? When I, whenever I look at my why of of why I do what I do, it's to be the person that I desperately wanted and needed early in my career for as many people as possible. Whether it's here in my business or through uh, Vistage, through various organizations that I'm a part of, through NBDA, I'm a mentor for NBDA, right? Like whatever I can do to give back, to, 
to be that sort of uh, sounding board or someone to help them give the knowledge, tools, and resources available to get to that next level. You know, I, I like to say my job is to really get an additional 20 to 40% out of every single producer we have in this building. And, and I enjoy doing that, right? Whether it's through education, through, you know, market research, whether it's through helping them remove obstacles in their personal and or professional lives. There's so much of that that I really get a lot of value out of. But I'm also over finance, accounting, I'm over, you know, I have a director of IT, but I, I'm the sort of visionary for IT. I've got kind of multiple hats that I wear, right? So every day is different. I come into the sure. office and I have very specific things I'll do on days. And, and, and I absolutely love that. Still get to do BD, still get to go to networking events, still get to talk to clients. There's so many things that I get to do. Uh, that's just really fun. It, it never feels like work unless I have to let somebody go. That's when it feels like work, but really they let themselves go at the end of the day. Right. And so I'm guessing most of your team of, I think you said you've got 30 plus people on the team. So I'm guessing most of those people are in producing roles. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. We've got about seven or eight operationally focused people, myself included, primarily my primarily daily, daily focus is not in a, a producing capacity at all, but yeah, most of them are producers. Okay. Excellent. Well, with that, let's switch gears and talk about the National Business Development Association, also known as NBDA. How did you uh, come to learn about NBDA? Yeah, so we actually, um, mutual contact that you know that we we talked about briefly was Mark Leary. We we met with Christine and, and I think Mike Siegel back in 2012, late 2012, beginning of 2013 and decided to, to donate some sponsorship dollars. Donations, I guess, the wrong word because we got something out of it. So it was a sponsorship for NBDA. We were the gold sponsor, founding sponsor. And like, and I served on the membership committee back in the day really to help also increase my networking ability. It was my first B2B sales job. I had numerous retail sales jobs through the gym industry, fitness industry, banking industry. I've done business development in, in a lot of different capacity, but primarily B2C before I got to Aldridge. And okay. so uh, when I pivoted into the B2B market, I really needed to strengthen my networking ability, my ability to stand up and present in front of large groups of people. And I figured that MBDA was the right place for me to go to do that. And you know, I, I met Christine through Mark back then, and I was in, in immediately, you know, wowed by her ability to work a room and and have real meaningful conversations with people. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to emulate that. I'm going to go where she goes. And that's what I did. Well, I can think of worse people to emulate to learn some B2B business development <laughs> skills than than that woman. So, so that makes sense about how you all uh, became involved as as a founding gold sponsor, and then at some point, I believe you were asked to join the board. Is that right? Was that right off the bat that you joined the board, or was that a, a, a ways into your experience? A ways into actually holding a board of directors seat. I served on numerous committees in the first few years. Uh, okay, I was on se- several other boards and several other committees and different organizations. I was trying to figure out what made sense for me to build my book of business around. And, and so for me, even though I was selling IT back in the day, you know, I was working with manufacturers and the association of administrators and different things like that, these different organizations. So I kind of spread my time out amongst all of them. And then when I came to Encore back in 2016, it's really when I joined the board 
as a full-time board of director because we're a sales organization, right? That's mm-hmm. what we are. That's what we do as a recruiting firm. And so it just, it made sense to really narrow that focus in. Okay. And so when you, when you think about NBDA, what are some of the, the benefits that you've enjoyed from your association with NBDA? Yeah. So I've gotten, a, I've gotten several clients out of it over the years, of course, like uh, that's the, the easy, well, I, I could pay my membership dues and event fees and whatever. And I, and then I get a client out of it and then it makes it literally, it's a nominal expense, if any at all, ever. Sure. Um, but so that's part of it, but then just the sharpening of the tools, right? Like sharp, we have to sharpen the saws as professionals. And sometimes as you, uh, go a little gray, like I am right now, after being doing this for, you know, 12 years in sales in a B2B space and in, in 20 years of my career, 20, 21 years of my career, you forget some of the basics, right? And, and we do a lot of coaching. We do a lot of, like I said, the mentorship. We do a lot of having phenomenal speakers that remind us of some of the little things that made us successful when we first got started that we forgot about. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it, brought, it brings us back up continuously, reminds us of those things that got us to where we are today that sometimes we let fly by the wayside. That, that makes complete sense. So speaking of, of business development, it sounds like you don't spend as much time doing BD as uh, when you're in a producer role. Is that correct? Correct. However, I coach a team of producers. <laughs> okay. Okay. So do you then do much business development yourself? I know you'd mentioned you still do some networking things, still talk to clients. Is that typically, are you just participating in another business development activity that one of your colleagues set up? Or are you still doing some you know, business development that you originated the meeting and it's just you? So both. So there's several situations where I get referred into clients because of my network. Just haven't been in Houston my entire life. And, uh, you know, being in Vistage and being on all these other organizations, you know, people do just call and say, mm-hmm. hey, I've got this need. Can you help us? Right. And so uh, there's a, there's still a ton of that that goes on. But then other other times it's, it's uh, someone else's activity that they teed up for me and then I'll participate in the call. Okay. Do you, okay, that, that is helpful. So these days in kind of a perfect week, how much of your time should be spent on business development? Do you think like a quarter? Or? It's, it's hard to say because I'm, I'm the, I'm of the mindset that you're always doing BD. I could be sitting at a bar waiting for my table at a restaurant and I'm doing BD, right? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure. the guy that always has always has the business cards in my pocket. I'm always talking to people and figuring out ways to to either help them or or help myself or help my company, right? And so it's hard to put a quantify like this is the percentage because I think that we're all doing BD all the time, right? And and uh, so it, you know, I I think as far as when I'm in the inside the office. You know, I, I don't do a ton because my primary focus is on operations and 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 helping the producers prep for their BD calls and making sure, making sure that they have the right information, the right 
you know, upfront contracts and things like that to use to really get the calls on, on track and things like that. And, and then I'll go back and listen to the BD calls and, and review those with them. So, you know, probably five, 5% maybe of my week is spent on BD, but, you know, a hundred percent of 20, 25 people's time is spent on some sort of business development or trying to penetrate existing accounts. Sure. No, that makes sense. So what are, what are like two or three BD best practices that you found have worked for you and or that you encourage your BD team or your team that your producers to do? Are there some activities that come to mind that you recommend? Yeah, so I think that the as far as best practice, the, the thing that my team gets tired of hearing me say over and over again is qualify hard to close easy. I okay. hate when deals blow up at the end. I absolutely hate it. And I and I tell every single recruiter that's ever worked for me, every single salesperson I've ever interacted with, you have to qualify hard to close easy. You've got to make sure you understand their pain. You've got to be able to fully understand it and make sure that it's a real opportunity because there's a lot of people that like to kick tires. There's a lot of people that want to see what's out there uh, without sure. maybe really being motivated. And so you know, walking your prospects, walking through your client, even existing clients that are coming back for a reorder, walking them through the pain funnel and really understanding, is this just surface level pain? Is there a real business impact? And is there a personal impact for the individual that I'm working with? Because, you know, we buy for four reasons, right? We buy for current pleasure, future pleasure, current pain, or future pain. And so mm-hmm. we've got to really understand what it is that they're buying for, which one of those things they're buying for, how are we going to solve that problem? What is the actual business impact to the cost of inactivity, right? If you do nothing, you hire none of my candidates, what is it going to cost you? And, and sometimes it's nothing because we're adding new revenue producers. Like mm-hmm. this is a newly created position, but sometimes it is when we're filling a role, it's like, Hey, this person left, this person retired, this person is whatever moves for whatever X, Y, Z reason. If we don't fill this position, we're going to lose clients we're going to lose revenue. And so, you know, when we're, especially like an associate attorney, right, they're servicing another partner's book of business. And so we have to make sure that we get that person in there. Otherwise we're going to potentially lose clients. Now that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I really like that saying qualify hard to close easy. I've never heard that before, but apparently if I, if I was stopped by your office, I'd be the only person uh, there who hadn't heard that apparently. Right. comes up in every training. <laughs> gotcha. So what else comes to mind that you that you you try to share with your team for best yeah, so practices? Under, absolutely. So understanding budget, right? Budget is more than just the fee they're going to pay us. It's more than just the salary, right? It's the, the people that are going to be involved. It's time and the resources, you know? Okay. So when we're getting to the budget step with a prospect, we want to make sure that we understand the actual dollar figure that they've allocated for the salary the dollar figure they're allocating for our fee, and then the time that it's going to take to close it, what's the process like from you know cradle to grave on the deal? What is it going to look like? First interview, second interview, third interview, dinner view, whatever they have, Zoom calls or in-person, who's got to be their panel interviews, right? We want to understand all that and then make sure that they're really thinking about the resources and saying, yeah, we should get that done in two weeks. And they're like, well, the CEO is going to be on vacation for three weeks. You know, right. over Christmas break. And so we can't even get that final interview until January. Okay, now we have realigned expectations for ourselves. 
And we qualify that harder to make the closing process easier so we don't get a frustrated candidate where it's like the process is stalemate because yep. the CEO's on vacation. We already knew that on the front end so we can over-communicate with our candidates. Yep. And then the third thing really for me is communicate, communicate, communicate. Be totally transparent with everybody, with your candidates, with your clients, with your prospects. If you don't think you could fill it, tell them why. If you if you're if they're not you know doing what's right or they're not following what's best practices are in the market, you got to communicate that. If you have bad news, you got to communicate. If you got good news, great. And then making that clear with your prospects and clients that you want it reciprocated. If you're going to tell me bad news, please just tell me. You're not going to hurt my feelings. But I'd rather you tell me than ghost me. Sure. I don't want to follow up with you a hundred times just to get. You know, the bottom of the voicemail, I, I filled up your entire voicemail inbox. Right. I'd rather not get that. But I'll you do know, it because I'm a sales guy. I'm going to do it. <laughs> but I you know, it, it, it's funny you mention making sure it's the right fit because I spent about four years in executive search in Houston in the late 90s for a retained firm. And, and that firm at the time was probably like a dozen... 14 people. And I remember I had this opportunity to, to, I think it was like a fortune 100 fortune 500 client and they needed to hire like between 50 and a hundred it people. And, and I forget like exactly what it was, but they were like sort of the identical role. They just needed like a hundred people to like do the same thing. And they needed them all hired, like in a hurry. And I don't remember if it was an existing client or somebody I discovered, but basically it was our work. And the fee was going to be huge, you know, as a percentage of our revenue, as you can imagine. And and I turned it down. I just told them that, and and they needed like all hundred people hired in ninety days. And and I just said, I just said, look, we're just not the right people. And you know, I remember my the owner of the firm was disappointed. And but I just said, look, we don't, it's not like we specialize in this area and we have 10,000 contacts, you know, who could fill this. That we just need to send an email out to to you know 10,000 people, get a couple hundred candidates, you know, hire 50 to 100. But we didn't have that and and we just couldn't perform. But I know that was probably one of the best decisions ever made when I was there. And I believe, if I recall, that company came back just a few months later with another project that they needed to hire like five or 10 people. And we could do that one. And we accepted that one. And I remember the the contact, the client contact. And I think what happened is whoever they hired to fill the 50 to 100, they, they failed because it was just a, I mean, a nearly impossible job. And, you know, given the short time horizon and the sheer number of people. So I remember that that second opportunity we had when I told him that we could do it. He told me that he said, he said, okay, he said, I believe you because this other job, you told us you couldn't do it. Another firm told us they could and they didn't. So you now have more credibility. And if you tell us you can do this one, we, we believe you because you, you turned down work when you couldn't do it. And and that job yep. went and that project went fine. So anyway, my yep. long-winded story 
about I can appreciate what you're saying about turning down work when it's when you don't have a high chance of success. And that and that takes a lot of, a long time, and and especially for like a young sales professional. I remember when I first started at Aldridge, I was the Brett Favre of sales guys. I was the gunslinger out there, you know, completely cowboying deals, over promising, under delivering. Like, <laughs> I, I just wanted to get, I wanted to get the wins. I love that feeling of closing the deal, right? Mm-hmm. So I was really excited to go over there to my service team and say, "Got you another one." Right. And then, then I was the guy that would walk over and be like, why can't you figure this out? And they're like, you, you sold something. We don't even know how to do. And I'm like, well, you'll figure it out. And I just walk back <laughs> and go, go close another deal. Right. But it, it, if, there, if the, the CEO and the president of Aldridge are listening to this or will listen to this podcast, I'll, I'll send it to them to make sure they do. But man, they used to beat me up for that all the time because I would, I, I would do that. But, but once you become a, a seasoned professional or you've seen enough of those deals go sideways, and realize that reputation means more than getting that win and that feeling of that win, then you can then you learn to qualify hard to close these. You learn to, to turn away business, right? I had a really good friend of mine call in the other day. Well, he called my main number. Hey, that's my cell phone number. But he called the main line and said, hey, I want to do business with you guys. I know Scott Kelly's your president. Uh, I went to high school with him. I want to do this search. And so our our admin got the call over to our client development manager, set up a call with our CEO, and he, he runs primarily the sales side of that, of the business. And so he got on the phone with the, the, the guy and said, hey, we're not the right fit for you. You're, you're pre-revenue. You know, you've invested a lot of your own capital into this. The role you want is going to be super specific and niche. And I can introduce you to a great IT recruiter. Even though this is part of the leadership team, I can re- refer you to the great IT recruiter that can speak to speak and, and, and knows exactly what to do and, and, and get it right on the first time. And I want to make sure that we do that, right? And and really, my my relationship with that person you know, came into came you know into consideration as well, right? But you know, that's me turning away or or our company turning away a friend because it wasn't good business for us at the time. No, I I can appreciate that. And I was chuckling when you were talking about how you know, you would you know you were the Brett Favre, the the, the gunslinger. You know, it's funny. I, I sold enterprise software also in the 90s. And it was kind of a similar thing. Every deal that I closed that I brought to my manager was unique. And every time you know, I would come into the office of the new deal, my boss is like, so like, what did you do this time? And it was most, it was just term stuff. And the main thing that I did was the software we sold, the primary purpose was to eliminate stale users you know, for, you know, Fortune 500 enterprises, you know, meaning, you know, their database showed that they had 10,000 users, but they really only had 6,000. And our tools was designed to help eliminate those, you know, 4,000 users because, you know, they were paying, you know, licensing for other software. But our sales model was so messed up because we would charge them for the 10,000 users, even though they really only had 6,000. And it was always this yeah. point of contention. The client's like, why am I doing this? So my little trick, and nobody else there ever learned it, because I've had the authority to do like maybe a 30 to 35% discount. And then, you know, I also learned there, that's why you always want to buy from the top person at a sales organization, because they have the highest yeah. discounting capability. And <laughs> you, you get the yeah. best deal. But But what I basically did was, I would sell 6,000 licenses at full price 
And then I would give them like a temporary licenses, but instead of our normal, like 15 day, try it out, I would give them like the free test licenses for like six or nine months, however long it would take to get them, you know, get rid of the stale users. And it was great because our revenue was the same as if I discounted, you know, 10,000 licenses by 40%, but the client was much happier with it. And the renewal was better because otherwise a renewal now they only had 6,000 users, but they were still wanting the 40% discount that I had trained them to pay retail. And so anyway, my you just made me think of that, the, the, the gunslinger. Yeah, I was notorious because I never did a, quote, standard deal. There was always, but it was because I really focused on what did the client want? What was the client's problem? What was their pain point that they were trying to address? Anyway, on that, how, uh, what's the most valuable thing you've learned and that you practice for building your network, would you say? The most powerful thing that I learned was probably it was the value of the network, right? And really understanding that what relationships mean, you know, because fortunately or unfortunately, we do most, primarily most of our business is done over the phone, right? Which is fortunate because we can scale nationwide without having to press the flesh. And so it makes it easier and and we have speed to market and things like that. But the relationships maybe sometimes aren't as deep, right? And so we have to find creative ways to, 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 to really foster those relationships. But when I was at Aldridge, I was only focusing on Houston. And then here in the Houston community, you know, whether I'm out at uh, nonprofit events, galas, things like that, like I said, I'm always doing business development. So when you're having those connections and you meet somebody when you're out, it's really, you know, fostering that really like following up on that. It was great meeting you at this event, being very specific and unique when you're sending those messages, whether mm-hmm. it's a LinkedIn request or an email after the fact and, and being, you know, not like a canned message, right? It's, it's, it's really, I met you at this event. I talked to you about this. I really want to stay connected. And then those are the people that you leave those lasting impressions on that'll come back and give me, maybe they'll refer somebody to me. More often than not, they try to get their cousin a job that got laid off two weeks ago or whatever it is, right? But sometimes it will give us a good opportunity to work on, and, and I absolutely love that. But not that I that I won't want to help the cousin if I can, but you know, we'll find them on on LinkedIn if if they're fit for something. But um, you know, really, the power of, of the network, the power of the relationship, the power of going to those events and actually taking advantage of it, right? Not mm-hmm. sitting in the corner talking to the one person you know, right? Actually working the room. That that's super super valuable, and and I'm glad I got to see people like you know Christine or Mike Siegel or Mark Leary doing that when I first got into the business. Right when I first got into business business sales, I got to see some of the best of the in the industry doing that at a very high level, and so and then was able to attend these workshops and stuff that reiterated all the things that they're doing. And I was like, yes, I'm I, I need to take this and I need to apply it and we need to apply it forever. No, I think you've uh, I think you've nailed it there. So uh, here's a little bit different of a question: if if you were talking to somebody who was looking to enter the BD profession, either they're right out of school, or maybe they had a more of a technical job for some period of time, and they want to shift over to BD, what what advice might you give to them? It depends on the industry. You know, if it is a technical sale still, 
and they were in a, they were a technical person doing that, they should be fairly successful because they know what they're talking about and they don't have to pull in a bunch of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that made me successful when I first got into sales is I spent the first probably 30 days as sort of like a sales coordinator, like a, a quoter almost, right, for the for okay. the CEO and the president. They, they managed, at the time, we were a smaller organization and they managed the key accounts. And so I kind of came in this sort of entry-level sales admin type role, but it really allowed me to learn so much because I got to, I was at the hip of the CEO, the hip of the president, or he was the VP of sales at the time. And I got to really talk to our high level clients about their complex needs. uh, And I got to build quotes and understand the margins and understand, you know, the different things, service offerings we had. And so for me, I was sort of carrying the CEO's briefcase, right? And that's what allowed me to really, you know, jump from there. At 30 days, I was promoted into being a biz outside sales sales manager, then promoted into the next role, and then moved into another role. Then got eventually got into operations and helped you know kind of run sales and operations and, and got to do a little bit of everything. And so that first time period where I was being super humble, doing the grunt work, really you know taking on all that experience, I think helped, you know, catapult me into what I was able to become today. Boy, that is great. I agree. That is great experience. I mean, what a great way to, to kind of enter the organization and to really get a foundation. Are you able to utilize that in your current organization or does it not lend itself to that approach as much? Absolutely. So on our industrial manufacturing team, Jeremy, our CEO, he sort of runs that team, right? So even though he's the CEO of the company, that client base is primarily his. And so whenever a new recruiter enters this industry, we do a really good job of doing business development. So they don't have to bring in their own accounts. They come in on day one and they already have job orders to work. Okay. And so they sit at the hip of the CEO and get on the calls with the clients, hear him qualify the, the job order to make sure that it's a good job order, a fillable job order. Then he shows them how to build a project, whether it's in LinkedIn or other tools that we use. And then he gives them the pitch, gives them the message, and then they go and execute. That's excellent. Okay. And for that, those positions, those industrial positions, are you hiring people uh, to be recruiters that come from that industry or is it necessary that they, that they have that industrial background? So we had a young man who had a chemical engineering degree and when he graduated college, obviously the market was not doing well. It was a few years ago. And so we recruited him. He was actually a property manager at a high end luxury apartment complex in like the Greenway Plaza gallery okay. area. And, but it's funny, he hit our bullion because he had a college degree, but he also had athletics in his background. And so even though he's a chemical engineer, he was super social and he was an athlete and super competitive, right? And so we were able to get him and he became, up until recently, he, he will have been the, the highest earner in his first 12 months working for us. Individual that I think will surpass that in his first 12 months is super super green when he got here, but you know, he didn't have any technical degree or anything like that, but he's a hard worker. He's a closer. He's a wordsmith. 
He's high energy, super quick start. Like he is a guy that I think will be very, very successful. That's really interesting. So is it fair to say that the first gentleman you mentioned that his income that first year with you all was probably more than he made doing property management? Is that a safe assumption? <laughs> double, double what he made in property management. <laughs> that is, that is awesome. Well, I cannot yeah, believe tw- how 27, he's a 27 year old young, young man at the time that was making $189,000 a year on his second full year with us. Right. That's awesome. That is, yeah. that is awesome. Well, I can't believe how the time has flown by. Just one more question, and this is more of a fun question. So you're a native Texan, right? Native Houstonian. Yep. So barbecue or Tex-Mex? <laughs> it depends on the day, but I'm a huge Tex-Mex fan. I, I love the original Ninfas out on navigation. Or yeah. El Tiempo, El Tiempo yep. night is one, one of the best. Um, those are probably my two favorite. Uh, but barbecue, I love barbecue. It's a great in Texas. I like some of the Austin barbecue spots better than Houston. Um, but we've got some good ones here. I just don't like driving down to Pearland. I don't really leave the loop for food. But if I did, are you I talking about are you talking about Killians? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Have you been to their their place in the on uh, in the Heights? I have not. No, I, I saw that they've opened one over there, but I need to get over there for sure. Yeah, it's spectacular. Yeah, maybe the best chicken fried steak I've ever had because it's not a barbecue place. It's a just like a southern cooking, and okay. I haven't been there in yeah. about a year. But they have barbecue that I think they they bring over from one of the other locations. I think they cook it, wrap it in aluminum foil, and bring it over. So they do have barbecue also. So yeah, I'm with you on the Tex Mex. So Scott, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to to tell your story and share some of your wisdom with with us. Was there anything you wished or that you think we should have covered that we didn't? One thing I always like to say is, you know, kind of the what I would have told my younger self type of deal, right? Is have the humility in in success, just as much humility as you have to have in defeat. I think that that was something that I think I could have learned. At an earlier age, that would have helped me maybe have a, a higher level of emotional intelligence when I first got into sales, when it came to service delivery and working with a team that had to fulfill whatever I just did. Mm. Um, and so there's something that I think is super important. That is great advice. I, I completely agree. Well, with that, we've had, let's wrap this up. Um, again, thank you for making time to be on the podcast. And it was really great having you on here. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at podcast.nbda.co. And you can find out more about being a member of the National Business Development Association at nbda.co. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.